I'm Chris Martin, and this is Half Hour of Heterodoxy. The show is produced by Heterodox Academy. You can find out more about us at heterodoxacademy.org. You can also find us on Facebook under Heterodox Academy and on Twitter at HDX Academy. My guest today is Richard Reeves. He's a social and political commentator, and he's written for several newspapers and magazines in both the U.S. and the U.K., including The Guardian and The Atlantic. He has also written a biography of John Stuart Mill, and between 2010 and 2012, Richard was director of strategy to the U.K.'s deputy prime minister. He has also served as director of Demos, the London-based political think tank, and he's currently a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. You can find out more about him at his website, richardreeves.com. So here is Richard Reeves. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to have you on. So you and Jonathan Haidt are about to release an edition of Chapter 2 of John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. It's an edition called All Minus One, and it's illustrated. Tell me a bit about how this came about. Well, John, uh, through his work at Heterodox Academy, has obviously been doing a lot to try and kind of uh, encourage this idea of free speech and uh, positive dissent on campuses and more generally uh, in society. And I'd actually come, I knew John from some previous work, but then I came across uh, some lectures he'd done where he uses John Stuart Mill as a kind of example of how universities should be working. He calls them the kind of truth universities. Uh, and I actually watched that with my son, um, my 16-year-old son. We watched it together and really enjoyed it. And I pinged an email to John saying how much I enjoyed uh, his work, what he was doing. And I obviously said I particularly appreciate what you are saying about Mill, because I'm Mill's biographer, uh, and let me know if there's anything else I can do to help. And I, one of the things I've learned about Jonathan is that one of the most dangerous things you can say to him is, what can I do to help? <laughs> um, because he immediately came back and said, ah, I'd forgotten you were Mill's biographer. We had this idea about reproducing some, if not all, of On Liberty, and you'd be great to work with on that. Uh, work with me on that so I said yes and then I think it was about a week later when Dave who's the uh, awesome illustrator that we've worked with on this uh, got in touch and said the same fateful sentence to Jonathan what can I do to help and John said well how do you feel about illustrating chapter two of Mills on Liberty uh, and Dave said yes and so the three of us met in New York and started kicking ideas and images around and um, ed- editing down the text uh, to hopefully make it more accessible to a modern audience whilst remaining faithful to it as a Mills scholar I was very conscious of that tension and writing a, an introduction with John and then adding the illustrations hopefully to make it more accessible and attractive to a modern audience and try and get across the idea that uh, much of what Mill had to say in 1859 remains relevant uh, in 2018. So it's been a really exciting and unusual project to be involved in. It is quite remarkable how John is able to balance so many projects and start new ones all at the same time. So I agree with your assessment of that uh, that aspect of John, working with John. Well, I think because if someone says, what can I do to help? He always has a good answer. He does. <laughs> We're all volunteers in the Jonathan Haidt. That is true. Yeah. We have to him to thank in part for Heterodox Academy. Indeed. So, speaking of Mill's argument, do you feel like there are any serious philosophical objections uh, to Mill's argument at the moment among political philosophers or general philosophers? 
So I do. Obviously, there are many aspects to Mills uh, Mills thought, and he had you know he had opinions on uh, a whole range of issues from you know, political economy through to forms of political representation, the future of democracy, uh, foreign foreign affairs, free trade, uh, and free speech, of course. But his most famous work has been around free speech and on liberty. and And I think that the the, the person who would most strongly want to claim that there are good arguments against Mill, or at least arguments against Mill, would be Mill himself. The whole point of his argument is that we should keep arguing uh, and that there aren't really any timeless truths. And so anybody who writes about Mill and says the timeless million truth about free speech hasn't really understood Mill because according to Mill, there's no such thing. So yeah, we should be constantly interrogating his arguments about free speech. And I think that the the main arguments that are made though against Mill that I think have most purchase are less about the theory, the theory that, that by bringing different opinions together and listening to each other, bringing them into kind of productive collision at that's actually the the process by which we learn more both about ourselves, each other, and the world. It's, it's still relatively well accepted. I think that there's a kind of general consensus that's a good way to think about the role of, of speech and, and engagement. I think the, the best arguments that are made are actually less substantive, if you like, and more sort of tactical. They're more about the reality of the world as it is today and the, the way that media and communications and societies have developed have not been in the direction that Mill hoped, which was bringing more more and more heterodox opinions together in sort of daily uh, productive dialogue, but actually more of a kind of fragmentation with people able to kind of choose their own media, choose their own messages and create sort of echo chambers within which we are not actually uh, engaging with other people's ideas. We're not subjecting our own ideas to sort of critical scrutiny and having that useful productive uh, exchange. What we're doing instead is we're retreating into sort of mini tribes where we try to only engage with people who already think what we think and just confirm what we think and actually dave said in one of our earlier um uh, conversations he said everybody's looking for the website i told you i was right.com and there's some real truth in that uh, in the way that the landscape of knowledge sharing and information sharing um, has developed and so i think the, the kind of question is does mill still work in an age of social media and, and uh, twitter uh, facebook etc and i think that's a that's a big challenge and one that, that that we do take on um because i think that mill couldn't have possibly anticipated the the plethora of this kind of uh, mass communication in such a way that it allowed us to fragment. It's really the fragmentation that I think could be the problem. So what what that means for me is that the other bit of Mill's argument has to be uh, held in in um, in the same thought process as the argument for free speech, which is that it's a demand on us as citizens not to just sit passively and wait for someone to come along and argue with us or disagree with us, but that it's a it's actually a duty of citizenship in a liberal democracy to seek disagreements to seek those who disagree with us to to be testing our own ideas um, against others and so it's actually you know it's quite a demanding sort of political philosophy and it's not going to happen just by magic so I think that actually what's coming I think the the point that um, we have to stress now is that you know free speech done well is an obligation of citizenship rather than just some sort of magical ingredient that will emerge out of thin air. On the issue of social media, I think one bit of encouraging news coming out of political science is that social media, well, it's unclear if social media is really isolating people. One finding is that people who don't use social media much seem to be more isolated from contrary opinions than people who do. Another finding is that uh, people who use social media often do occasionally find people, particularly if they have friends or acquaintances who are loose acquaintances, uh, find people on social media who have differing political opinions. But 
perhaps, and I tweeted about this yesterday, it was a report that came out, perhaps because some people are very vocal, we feel like we're constantly seeing political news that is aligned with our interests, but it's really just a small number of people on our feed who are generating a lot of that news. Well, it's a very hopeful comment. I mean, I think that that's, uh, I'm not aware of the, the research that you immediately kind of refer to, but you're, you're certainly right to say it's quite nuanced. And you can imagine just actually being in a literal village cut off or somewhere very different from the sort of global communications might make you more isolated. And then you're just doing it through local institutions. And so then you've got the geographical and racial and economic segregation doing a lot of the work for you. So I think it's really interesting to think about the fact that these tools, like all tools, are both can be used for both good and ill in the million sense of free speech. I've actually got a, you know, a, uh, an app that I've downloaded which looks at my current, uh, the people I currently follow on Twitter and suggests people I might might also follow to just get balance. And I think I try to do that anyway. And you may well be right that for many people, actually, it's a way to find alternative opinions. The question is, how many people do that? As opposed to how many people sim- simply seek to have uh, to follow those who are going to confirm their existing prejudices, and so it's hopeful to sort of think that actually we're going through a learning process of learning how to use these new tools in a way that will kind of bring the broader engagement and uh, productive disagreement that Mill wanted. My fear is that it does sometimes become a bit of a duel. So even if you encounter opinions that are different to a, is it in a dueling way, you know, there's a lot of people that are on these social media platforms that sort of, you know, sometimes they call trolls or whatever, but there's clear that they're just sort of, they're, they're there simply to to attack and not really to engage. And I think that the, the, the missing bit about the free speech argument is the need for listening. And I would mean that both just you know, physically listening as, as we are to each other now, but also through social media, because it does require us to open open ourselves up to the arguments of those we disagree with, rather than simply seeing them as um, a, a combatant, someone who uh, just would go instinctively into a fight mode with. You know, we can disagree, that's part of the point, but the purpose of the disagreement is not to prove them wrong, you right, but it is to try and make everyone a little bit more right <laughs> over the course of the conversation. That's true. Social media does tend to encourage shorter replies, and I think that's one of its limitations, too. Well, moving on to uh, your research, your other research, your primary focus is social mobility and family structure. How did you get involved in John Stuart Mill in the first place? Well, that's a, that's a long story. It actually overlaps a little bit with some of your interests, Chris, around happiness and well-being. I actually started uh, studying some of the uh, connections between the new literature, which was coming around, um, new measures of hedonic well-being, big data sets that were being used to measure subjective well-being or happiness, and thinking about what that meant for utilitarianism um, of the kind of Benthamite variety. And that led me to Mill. And, uh, and in Mill, I think we see the personification of the tension between utilitarianism and liberalism. And my own view uh, is, for what it's worth, Mill's a pretty poor utilitarian because he is such a good liberal and that his life was spent kind of in that in that tension. Um, and I think that, so that obviously relates to the free speech which we just talked about, but it does, I think, underpin some of my other work too on ideas of social mobility um, because the idea of birth as destiny is something that's kind of deeply illiberal in the Millian sense and something that Mill himself was very strongly opposed to. I think the essence of Mill's liberalism is this idea of um, being a self-governing and self-propelled, not in an atomized, individualistic way, but in, in in a sense that captures our own individuality, in a sense that captures the fact that we are going to have different versions of, of the good, different versions of a good life, and that a good society is one that kind of 
promotes and allows for a kind of plurality of different versions of good life. You're respecting each other's rights to kind of live in different ways, ways that we might find very different to the way we think is the right way to live, but nonetheless, which we respect that sort of difference. And so actually there is a connection there between that idea of a kind of plural society and a mobile society and a diverse society and the idea of social mobility, which is really about not being sort of trapped by the circumstances of your birth, whether by class or race or geography, into a particular way of life. Uh, and in a sense, and other, and instead being able to sort of make your own way through life, actually, as a new American. Um, I've written a little bit about what I think Americanism is. And one of the things that strikes me about um America is that people will say things like she's really made something of herself. People will boast about being a self-made man or a woman, but it's deeper than that. It's this sense of made something of herself. And that's very important. It's a sense of kind of self-creation and self-propulsion, which I think lies at the, the heart of the idea of the American dream, where rather, rather than your status or your role or your lifestyle being dictated to you by others, it is instead to use Will Kimlicker's phrase, a life lived from the inside. Uh, and so it does connect. It does connect to this idea of sort of my quintile transition, my charts on mobility are actually in some senses a, a kind of modern uh, empirical expression of a million idea of uh, being able to chart our own course through life. That's interesting. I'm a new American myself or a newish American. I became an American in 2013. I'm originally from India which uh, is also the place Amartya Sen is from. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned in one of your talks that uh, he's the closest thing we have to John Stuart Mill right now. What makes you say that about him? Well, I'm just a huge fan of Amartya Sen's work anyway. You know, the joke about Sen is that when he won the Nobel Prize, um, everyone was like, oh, that's amazing, but then started arguing about what he'd won it for because he could have won it for so many different areas of his work. Um, and I think the the thing that um, draws me to make the parallel between Amartya Sen and John Stuart Mill is really uh, Amartya's role as a public intellectual. Uh, and that's very much in the kind of million mold. And in fact, uh, there was a, an event where um, Amartya Sen was speaking and he was asked why he hadn't um, stayed in kind of more analytical philosophy like his good friend Jerry Cohen, for example. Um, and uh, I'll never forget his answer. This is in a packed theatre in Oxford years ago. And his answer was he kind of he thumped on the on the kind of podium and he said, because there is too much work to be done. Uh, and that seemed to me to kind of capture some of the essence of, of uh, Sen's intellect, which is that it's restless to make change happen in, in influences work at the UN, where, of course, as you'll know, he had a huge influence in kind of creating the whole idea of human development um, out of the UN. His work uh, now in India and trying to kind of improve the sort of political, uh, the body politic, if you like, of India, his work around women and women's rights. And so, um, and many of his uh, disciples, intellectual disciples, those who are out in the field helping Mexico create a new poverty measure or in uh, developing countries and trying to improve human rights and so on. And so whilst I think he's intellectually just right up there with the greats, what makes him stand out, I think, from many other philosophers or economists of his generation is this public intent and the public spirit behind it. So I'll quote him again, you know, there's just too much work to be done. He's not an ivory tower academic in just the same way that Mill wasn't. Um, he's uh, trying to use the intellectual gifts he's been given and the tools at his disposal to to bring about change. Uh, and I think that that's, that sort of public intellectual work is is something that kind of you can see through the lineage uh, of from Mill to Sen. And there aren't very many others like him in the world today. I think his concern with well-being and the measurement of well-being in a 
to balance utilitarianism and liberty is also an interesting connection there. Certainly found that the way he changed the focus from measuring purely satisfaction to measuring whether people have liberties and are aware that they can exercise liberties through education, through a good primary and secondary education, really changed the way I viewed the measurement of, of overall well-being, social well-being. Yeah, I think I think he's I think he's very similar to Mill in that sense. You know, I think he's he's not he clearly sends not a utilitarian, um, but I think for similar reasons the why Mill isn't utilitarian um, because in because of precisely this sort of sense of having the capabilities to use it. One of his best known phrases to kind of you know chart our own course, uh, and so it captures I think what I think that Sen captures that echoes Mill very strongly is a respect for individuality without descending into individualism. And I think that's a kind of critical distinction that Sen and Mill both get. They respect individuality. In fact, Sen describes himself as a methodological individualist in the end. What that means, as you know, is the kind of sense of the ultimate source of authority over my good is me. I can draw on the wisdom of others and of the ages, but the but I I in the end am the expert on my own well-being, and um, that differentiates Sen from many of the contemporary communitarians. Just as Mill's liberalism in the end separated him from the util- the narrow utilitarianism of both his father and his godfather Jeremy Bentham. Now, you and Caroline Meal have a piece coming up about the link between John Stuart Mill and the Me Too movement. Talk about that a little. Yeah, well, Car- Caroline and I got talking about this, or she actually asked a question at a, an event um, that Heterodox Acad- Academy was running, talking about this Mill movement. And um, she was she was beginning to she asked the question about the the Me Too movement, and um, we got talking about it. And as a result of her question and the engagement between us, it sort of really just sort of struck me the obvious truth uh, struck me anyway that the main uh, shift that's occurred as as a result of the Me Too movement is that things that were previously not said are now being said that women who were previously silent about the uh, situation that they were suffering um, because of the power dynamics and because of the the impact it could have on them were silent. And suddenly they're not. Suddenly they're speaking. Uh, And you'll see the court case where the judge brought every single woman to speak. Uh, And it's really the voices that are making the difference here. The The big change agent in the Me Too movement is speech and freedom of speech. And it also re- it reminds us that people's speech is not only restricted by laws and rules and regulations, which is not what, which is Mill's main is, but by social customs and by fear, um, by fear of speaking out. Now, it's a particular case, of course, but it speaks very strongly to the fact that free speech can be an hugely important um, deconstructor of power structures simply by using their voices and speaking freely. These women have have changed the landscape of many of our institutions. At the same time, of course, you're now sort of seeing some backlash because you're seeing some people who are kind of overstating kind of what's happened or there'll be exceptions to the rule or some of the distinctions are lost. And so you're also seeing that there's a cost too. As soon as people start speaking freely about something, then there'll be there'll be errors as well as truths. Um, there will be mistakes as well as as well as accuracies, and that's always true. But in the grand scheme of things, what you're seeing is the power of free speech to liberate. In other words, the Me Too movement being almost an example, not only because Mill was such a great feminist himself, but also kind of almost an exemplary uh, way of showing the power of free speech to change the world in a progressive direction. So in that sense, the Me Too movement is really very Millian. 
In some ways, it resembles the Arab Spring movement, if you think about how social media was used during that movement. Of course, that was actually used to coordinate real concrete protests. But in a different way, it was an example of media becoming so affordable that it became a way for people who had very little power in a society mm. to express themselves. Mm, I think that's right. But the, 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 as you say, that was very often used to kind of organize other kinds of protests, whereas I think with the Me Too movement, it's really been, you know, the 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 main instrument of of change has been voice has been speech the you know the difference between a monday and a tuesday in this case was a woman was silent on monday and spoke on tuesday and the consequences of that were very often quite profound um and so if we wanted to find a contemporary example of how removing the gags removing the fear of speaking and just speaking freely um can alter power dynamics and i think the me too movement is perhaps the best example we have at our uh, at our disposal. It's really just been incredibly powerful and inspiring um, to see voices change societies. So what kinds of future projects do you have in the pipeline right now? Well, uh, with my my Brookings hat on, which is, of course, my, my daily hat, I'm actually launching a new project on the future of the middle class. Um, I've previously done quite a lot of work on the top 20% in a book called Dream Hoarders, which you've given me the chance to plug uh, right here at the end. But I'm kind of interested in what's happening in the middle. I think the fate of the middle class, particularly in kind of advanced economies, uh, has implications for the political economy of the whole world. Uh, and we're seeing that play out both in my old country through the Brexit referendum and my new country through the election of Donald Trump, which is that uh, in the hands of skillful populists, the the, uh, the genuine discontent and sense of disengagement that's felt by many of those in the middle of the income distribution can be turned in, into quite destructive forces in terms of many of the institutions, uh, both domestically and internationally, that we need in order to thrive. So um, that's going to be one of the things I'm uh, working on over the next uh, few months uh, and years. And I'm also increasingly interested in, and this comes back to me too, I'm interested in what's happening to men and to modern masculinity uh, so the kind of necess necessary but slow reforms in the sense of what it means to be a man today is something i've been thinking about for a long time and as as a son and as a brother and as a father of three three sons um the kind of shifts in the uh, nature of masculinity is something i've been thinking about for a long time so it may now be time to put some pen to paper and say a bit more about that when I was doing some work on my dissertation, I was talking to psychotherapists about whether they feel like there's any particular population of college students who is most prone to anxiety and whether men in some ways are more prone to it. And a few of them did say that there does seem to be among young men, particularly this hunger for a psychologically healthy father figure rather than a dysfunctional father figure. Mm -hmm. Well, it, as as the father of a twenty-one-year-old, a seventeen-year-old, and a sixteen-year-old, those are, those are words to to keep me up at night. Um, but yes, I, I think there's something really something to that. But I, I also think that what we're seeing is that many of the uh, assumptions about the role of men, and to some extent, the assumed kind of uh, superior role of men in certain institutions was actually you know made life quite easy for men uh, there weren't too many questions to be asked about what kind of man you needed to be there was a pretty pretty there's a pretty clear script to follow um one that mill would of course wanted us to challenge and did in his own work on gender but uh i now think that as some of those assumptions about what it means to be a successful man are kind of dropping away it's a real test for men and to some extent, I think we focus very strongly on the economic dependence of women on men, um, quite rightly. Uh, 
uh, as part of the feminist movement, but um, we've perhaps missed the emotional dependence of men, uh, both on the women in their lives, but also, as you say, on fathers. And so, so in some senses, the fragility of men is being exposed now, as we're seeing some of the more uh, obvious forms of patriarchy form or, fall away. Uh, and I think that's creating a really interesting and difficult moment for, for young men in particular. Do you have a particular opinion on Hannah Rosen's book? I know it's been three or four years now. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Hannah's book, but um, I don't think I, I I I don't think we need any more books about the end of decline of uh, men. Um, I think it's really about what kind of um, man we want now. I think essentially, I think she's right to sort of say that this is a, a question of adaptation on the part of men. But I think that. Um, Many of the books that are written about men, and most of the best books written about men, are written by women, of course, somewhat understate the the differences between men and women. And one of the challenges, I think, and one of the challenges that I have personally, as well as intellectually with this, is kind of recognizing difference without in any way exalting uh, inequality. Um, but, and I think that my own mistake in the past, and the mistake that some others make, is to sort of assume an androgynous symmetry is possible. Uh, and that's not appealing to men either. Uh, so we need to find a way to resuscitate and revive masculinity and and make it not less uh, masculine but differently masculine you know we don't we, we shouldn't be saying to men just be less man you know be less masculine masculinity bad ergo be less of it but instead to sort of you know, think again about what forms of masculinity we want and which ones we don't rather than simply trying to just dial down masculinity because that's both to, i think unrealistic but also unappealing um to men to just say you just need to be less like men um because there are some aspects of themselves that they don't have much choice about and so that's the challenge so you've now drawn out of me much more than i've said publicly about this so far but that's the direction in which i want to to take my work on that particular issue before we wrap up do you have any closing thoughts i think kind of the last one is just that uh, i i really hope that the idea of free speech uh, in the million sense, and we've talked about Me Too, but I think we can also talk about civil rights and so on. Um, the free speech will be seen as not a conservative agenda or a kind of progressive agenda, but a kind of general agenda. I think there's a danger at the moment, the way this is kind of playing out, um, which is uh, the free speech is somehow being captured by certain kind of conservative voices. Um, and I can see why that would be kind of appealing to many of many of them. But I think that that's very dangerous for the way we think about it. And so what I hope we'll get out of this is a kind of sense that you know, free speech uh, is something that progressives or those who identify as liberal or on the left or whatever is something that is just as important to them as it is to those on the right. It's been interesting to see how free speech has sort of become something that's kind of being talked about much more on the right than on the left, possibly partly because of the success of many of the centre-left projects and especially the socially liberal one. Um, but nonetheless, it, it worries me if it starts to get pigeonholed in that way. And Mill, as a pretty exemplary progressive in the proper sense of the kind of term, um, and perhaps the clearest articulator in the Western canon anyway of the idea of free speech is the perfect person to help uh, remind us of those facts. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. And uh, I'm looking forward to reading All Minus One and I hope our audience is too. Thanks for having me, Chris. Great, great conversation. Okay, bye. Bye-bye now.